0: Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and welcome to Season 9. This season is all about the midterm elections and the issues at the center of key races. For our first episode, we're focusing on reproductive rights. I'm so excited to kick this season off with Oriaku Njaku, the Executive Director of the National Network for Abortion Funds. I wanted to talk to Oriaku because they have been dedicated to increasing abortion access in the South for years now. We'll get into the barriers people of color face, and we'll explain why we want to build something better than Roe. But first, a lot has happened since our last episode, and it's no surprise to any longtime BGG listeners. But I have some thoughts. So today, I'm joined by one of the BGG producers, Brittany Martinez, to chat a little bit about what's going on in the news.
1: Hi, Ashanti. Hey, Brittany. <laughs> so as we've been working on this season, there's one big story on everybody's mind. The fall of rap. we We've seen trigger laws go into effect in states like Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas. These laws restrict, and in some cases, even ban abortions. And for years, as you know, the Republican Party has said it's up to the states to decide. Well, that changed this week when Lindsey Graham proposed a nationwide abortion ban bill. Take a listen. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to
0: save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. hmm This was not shocking to me at all. If we actually go back to the Supreme Court decision that day when Roe fell, you did have so many anti-abortion proponents saying, Oh, yes, we are excited to have this go back to the states. We're going to take this to the states. But at the end of the day, we want to see a national ban on abortion. They have been giving us the game plan for decades that this is what they wanted. So to see Senator Graham introduce this just a few months after the fall of Roe, I was shocked, but I wasn't shocked. I also think this, this is very much a play for Republicans to excite their base because they did not plan for the energy that was going to happen, especially with women, with the follow row and how women actually want bodily autonomy. We know what happened in Kansas. We are seeing so many elections shift. They need to do something to energize people who do not support abortion. But just like the follow row, this is 100% going to have the opposite effect. This is now just going to give more energy to those who are already energized. And if we look at the way that people are registering for the general election, especially in so many battleground states, it's younger women, and they are an absolute force. And they will continue to be a force as we go into so many elections. And this is why we have to pay attention to every single election, especially in 2022. We know the Senate is on the line. We know what will happen if Senate, if Republicans gain control of the Senate. Lindsey Graham has told you. So we have so many key Senate races that are happening. We have the opportunity to actually put a Black woman back in the Senate after we lost Vice President Harris. So we have to make sure that we are reelecting the good senators, that we're getting new good senators. We could literally see our rights to control our bodies totally taken away if Republicans gain back control of the Senate. And this is what they want. This is the final play in their plan.
1: Yeah, and to me, it does look like a lot of the Republicans are scared and there's some splintering happening in the GOP because when Mitch McConnell was asked about it, he said he prefers abortion to be handled on the state level. How worried do you think Republicans are going into the midterms?
0: Oh, to have the Senate majority leader speak out against another high-profile senator? Of course he's scared. I think in South Carolina, probably what Senator Graham is playing very well, but it is not playing well with the rest of the country. But going back to Kansas, we absolutely know that just because it's a red state or a conservative state or a Christian state, women are energized to protect their reproductive freedom. So to see Senator McConnell say this, I wasn't shocked at all. This man does want to get control of the Senate, but we have to be honest. He could be playing both sides, too. He could be saying this just to make sure that Republicans gain back control. And when they have control, he goes, oh, you know what? Actually, let's go with the federal ban. You can't trust the tortoise man. That is what he does all the time. But at the end of the day, this is about Republicans wanting to win, wanting to shift the energy. I think regardless of what Senator McConnell is saying, if he firmly believes this, if he doesn't believe this, we will see this bill introduced in the Senate.
1: Yeah, and it's just a matter of time. So we have to be strong going into the midterms and make sure that we all vote.
0: Yes, we do. You can hear more about the effects of this post-Roe world in my conversation with and Njaku, the executive director of the National Network for Abortion Funds. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ariaku, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about a really important topic. You co founded your abortion fund in 2015. Yeah. What was happening in your life at that time that really pushed you to take the leap and tackle such a huge problem like abortion access?
2: Right. Um, so I worked in an independent abortion clinic here in Atlanta. And The year prior was when I was first introduced to reproductive justice as a framework. I went to my first conference in 2014 and was like, I have to do something in this field. Like this is meeting at various intersections. It's the first place where I felt that all of the things that make me other had a home. And so during that time, I was like, I need to find a job in this movement. So I actually started working at the abortion clinic. Answering phones, making appointments for folks to be able to get to their appointments. And within my first clinic day, I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was expecting more white folks to be showing up in the clinic because the the clinic was in Buckhead. But on the first clinic day, the only white person in the clinic was the clinic administrator. And going forward, it was just all folks, black, indigenous, people of color folks, like coming into the clinic to get abortion care. And yeah, the first three months I was like, y'all, we gotta do something different because all of the hoops that people are trying to navigate, all the ways that folks are trying to get an abortion and what those barriers are, like our, our folks deserve better. So let's start an abortion fund. And that's how we actually got started with my other co-founders. We were all working in that clinic. The commitment to, you know, doing abortion access work is also my my dreams for collective liberation and that we definitely want to make sure that folks have the material conditions met for accessing abortions. And really that's the same when you're working towards collective liberation. So that that has been guiding me the whole time.
0: So, you're living in Atlanta now, uh-huh. but you grew up in Kentucky. Yeah. Just thinking back to growing up there, we know that Kentucky is now a state that has banned abortion mm-hmm. following the fall of Roe. Are there things that you remember just in Kentucky about the lack of access and overall inequality that yeah. communities of color faced?
2: Yeah, the thing is, in Kentucky at the time, there were only Two abortion clinics. So there was one in Louisville and one in Lexington. And so I lived in South Central Kentucky. And so the closest abortion clinics for us was in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And so, you know, living in a community where you have to drive an hour or more to get to a clinic is something that was a barrier for a lot of people. Um, Or having to figure out how to get gas money and childcare as you're traveling up to Lexington. Um, or Louisville, that was also an obstacle. Um, Kentucky, growing up, there was never really conversations about abortion. I mean, our sex education was abstinence only, a bit of a hot mess, you know? And so it wasn't like, let's talk about abortion. It was like, first of all, you shouldn't be having sex until you're married. So that's what I was indoctrinated with. It wasn't much talk about abortion, but I knew from the very beginning, especially since my parents are Nigerian, growing up, it was a lot of focus on self, self-determination and autonomy. And so really thinking about that, that like everyone should be able to self-determine what's best for them and their families and their communities. And so even though it was a pretty conservative environment, I always knew that like I'm going to fight for something until all of us are free.
0: And you're doing it. Let's dive a little bit into your abortion fund. Can you tell us what really makes it unique, especially being in the South?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, Access Reproductive Care Southeast is a regional reproductive justice organization. And when I was the executive director there, it was so important for us to have the folks working at ARC Southeast would be a reflection of the communities that we work in. So there was, uh, you know, prioritizing the fact that people of color, mainly Black folks, are working at the abortion fund. And the reason for that is, you know, we know a majority of folks that need access to abortion care are Black. And that's how it was in Georgia, in the Southeast. But really thinking about the data that ARC Southeast had collected, was like 88 or so. It's like over 80% of the folks that we worked with were Black people. And so we knew that that work was super important. We knew that there's the financial aspect of getting an abortion, but a lot of folks don't think of the other barriers that may keep someone from having an abortion. So that's rides, lodging, child care, mm. how to navigate time off work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in some states, there's two visits that you have to go to um, versus just being able to go into a clinic and get an abortion. So, working in that context, we also had practical support volunteers. So, folks who would provide that childcare, who would open up their homes, who would drive people from bus stations to the clinics, or would drive them all the way from South Georgia up to Atlanta to get an abortion. And so, having like people in community also coming together to make sure that folks have what they need to get an abortion. That was the whole thing, you know, and really wanting to focus on not only funding abortion, but building power in our communities and really having transformational relationships with the folks that we work with on the health line and also in community. Definitely don't want this to be a transactional relationship really wanted to Mm -hmm. see How can this work really move us towards having a base of people who are informed, who feel empowered to speak up against the reproductive oppression that we experience every single day? And so being in the South, being Black-led, it was really important to have that visibility as well to be like, this is not just a white folks issue. Like abortion impacts us in so many different ways. And so really communicating that with people was really important to us, too. And to really all the other Southern funds uh, who are doing this work as well.
0: I want to dive into this stigma around abortion and especially Black people mm-hmm. that were just promiscuous, like they treat abortion like birth control. Yes. And it angers me. It angers me so much. And it just goes to the discrimination that we have always faced as black people in this country. Right. So can you tell us a story or two about the people that you met who needed abortion for health care? Yes because right now, I'm just extremely sad about this story coming out of Louisiana where a woman, a black woman who is pregnant mm. knows that the baby will be born with no skull. Mm. And she's being forced to carry around a child that she knows that she can't raise. And that is just so heartbreaking. Yes. And we're having more and more of these stories come out where women are literally being forced to give birth. So what are some of the situations that you have seen?
2: Mm. Well, one of the things is that a majority of folks who generally reach out to abortion funds are either on Medicaid, they're insured through Medicaid, or they're uninsured. They're unemployed, or they have like low employment or limited employment opportunities. And so I'll tell two stories. So there was someone who we worked with who moved here from Minnesota and was trying to get an abortion in Atlanta. And so when she called, She was like, oh yeah, I have my Medicaid card. And Minnesota is one of the states that actually allows for folks to use their Medicaid for an abortion. And so we're like, oh, it'll cost this much. How much are you contributing? And she was like, wait, you have to pay for an abortion here? I was like, yeah, you have to pay for an abortion here because there was no Medicaid expansion here in the South. And a lot of insurance companies are not paying for an abortion. Medicaid cannot be used to get an abortion. So, you know, but we're going to come together and make sure that you have what you need to get to your abortion. And it was just mind boggling that there was like no public support for getting an abortion. It's also happened with people who come here for New York or have family from New York that come to Atlanta and have the same, the same thing. They're like, well, why can't I use my medicaid to pay for an abortion. So that's that's a thing. I mean a lot of it is like especially when you know that someone is unemployed and really they may be on medicaid but they're still unemployed knowing that because medicaid again was not expanded in the south things like not even being able to use the medicaid transportation to get to their appointment because they do not believe here that abortion is healthcare. And so, even when there's opportunities to get a ride through Medicaid, have someone stay with you through Medicaid, you can't do that here in the South. Any of this, a lot of that goes back to the Hyde Amendment as well. So, yes, I was gonna, (laughs) I was
0: like, let's talk about that because you are a big, huge, do not like it opponent of the Hyde Amendment. We have discussed it on the podcast before a few times, Mm -hmm. but want to hear from your point of view as a Black woman doing abortion work in the South, why it is just so detrimental.
2: Well, I think a little bit of the history of how it even came to fruition is something really important to realize. So Roe v. Wade went into effect in 1973. And the Hyde Amendment went into effect in 1976. So even the anti-abortion folks have been creating their strategy and preparing for this, you know?
0: They haven't been lying when they're like, this has been a decade's plan. Yeah,
2: yeah. Decades. Yeah. And uh, anyway, at this point, they just do the most. They're trying to put in the most restrictive policies. But at the time, the Hyde Amendment was actually one of those policies. The creator- Of the Hyde Amendment, Henry Hyde. The position that he took was I actually want to end abortion for everyone, but what I can do is prevent folks who are low income from being able to have abortions. So that means that you can't use your Medicaid to get an abortion. And so the Hyde Amendment now became a federal policy that denies health insurance coverage for folks seeking abortions and really disproportionately impacts. People of color, black folks, who are just trying to live, who are just trying to be able to thrive in a healthcare system that has impacted us, a lot of us, in so many negative ways. That's always the situation. Thinking about mm-hmm. that, that this was intentional about making mm-hmm. abortion hard to get. But the thing that like gets me so much every year is that the Hyde Amendment is not a law. Like it's actually not a law. What this is, is it's like a rider. And so it's put into the budget of and whatever laws that come out each year say we will not be investing money or Medicaid funds to abortion. And so this is a choice to like keep having Hyde Amendment, you know, be present. It's actually a choice. It's actually something where they could be like, no, we're going to get rid of it. And It was just so wild that even within this recent Biden administration, he released the first presidential budget in decades to eliminate the policy of Hyde Amendment. But we also know that it's back in effect. So a lot of it is partisan. He tried. He tried. He tried. (laughs) He had it for a year. It was great.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I think we got to give Biden-Harris credit where credit is due. That that was huge of them. Yeah, that
2: was it was huge. And that is one piece of what is required. But eliminating that was huge for a lot of people.
0: Yes. So I want to bring us into the present day, mm-hmm. where we are at now. I feel that for me, I will always remember where I was when the Dobbs predecision got leaked mm-hmm. to politico and i will always remember where i was when the ruling came out and we know right after the decision was announced the anti abortion people were on tv and i i do what i do i'm very much a democrat i am very much pro abortion i believe in reproductive justice but i listen to what the other side has right. to say all the time because i need to know what my opponents are thinking and what their next moves are. And they were very clear that they're now really going to take this state by state. That's already what they were doing to get this back to the Supreme court to get Roe overturned. Their plan is full on abortion is illegal in its entirety in this country. For us, each of us lives in a state, our United States listeners Mm -hmm. But we even have some global listeners. And one of the things that really stuck with me is I traveled out of the country Mm -hmm. right after the decision. And I had people saying to me, what is going on with your country? I had middle-aged men who were disagreeing with our Supreme Court yeah, and who were saying, what is going on over there? We need women to fix it. So for our listeners in the United States globally, we want to work with you. How do we start to fix this? What are some of the things that we can do? And one of the things that I say is I would actually like to see us build something better than Roe that doesn't have the Hyde Amendment and all these restrictions. Like, I want to go big. Like, everyone's like, we got to get Roe back. I'm like, no, I want to build something So much better, better for the next generation, especially doing the work that I do in politics, getting women in leadership roles. I absolutely know that not having access to abortion is going to impact women entering politics and women entering leadership roles. And now because of this, men continue to have more of an advantage than women because we no longer have that control of our body. So we're building something better than Roe. What are some of the things that we
2: can do? Mm, That is, I love that question because, (laughs) you know, the idea of Roe just being like this cure-all for abortion and abortion access to me has always been problematic. The idea of protecting or codifying Roe, would not have changed the reality that abortions are not accessible for so many of us. And I definitely believe that there is a future beyond Roe. You know, one of the things that has been said a lot recently has been framed as like, Roe is the floor. Roe is the floor and not the ceiling. (laughs) I find that incredibly problematic. I reject the idea. So it's like, if we're thinking about a house, and the floor is on top of a foundation that's rooted in white supremacy and cis-heteropatriarchy. Not only Speak on is it, it insulting, but that solution is <laughs> insufficient. And I'm not trying to live in that house either. <laughs> you know, none of us should be living in that house. So when thinking about taking a more proactive forward stance on this next iteration of a movement that we're co-creating, we have to definitely reimagine this house. So what I think of is like first tearing down the whole damn house that it just is not sufficient. And so thinking about it, I definitely want to ensure that when we build this new house, it's on land that is fortified by the reproductive justice framework. Really thinking about how the blueprints of the house will have a foundation that makes sure that all of the material conditions are being met for everyone, regardless of having an abortion or not, as we move and build towards our collective liberation. I have so many thoughts, y'all. Um, <laughs> I think that <laughs> the floor, the new floor, should really account for all of the issues that we care about, including mm-hmm. abortion access. So this is now not a partisan issue. This is not just a single issue. Having this new floor, essentially will show how these issues intersect and influence the myriad of choices that we make not only for ourselves, but our communities, our chosen family, biological family, and found families, you know, in order to live and thrive. That house will be for all of us. I want to experience that house in my lifetime and also (laughs) for future generations as well. So just thinking of all the things that so I'm like, uh, we can radically restructure how all of this is because coming into this work, doing, having the same strategy. And so doing the same thing by focusing on rights, um, and not actual accessibility, focusing on that, having that be like the framework that we use to get abortion access back. I'm like, no, y'all that's uh that's not going to work. It's not going to work for any of us. I'm sorry. Um, yes. And so really using and tapping into like our radical imagination to be able to be like, what is possible? What do we actually want? What do we want our world to look like? And so, yeah, lots of feelings about Roe. <laughs> But it's something that I'm like, no, this is an opportunity to really, Mm -hmm. you know, reimagine what access, not only to abortion, but to healthcare looks like for everybody, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned it. We need to co create this together, which means we're going to have to bring some people along. You know, I mentioned before, I love the fact that we're finally having more men speak out about this because it's very important. So I also just want to fast forward a bit. The holidays are upon Mm -hmm. us. We know (laughs) we're going to be gathering with the family and friends soon. And clearly this is going to be a topic of discussion. 100%. So we're sitting at the table Someone's like, I'm so glad that Roe fell. I popped some champagne. I really do think that so many people don't realize just the generations of harm. Yes. Generations of harm that this is going to cause. Right, right.
2: And what even the attempts to eliminate abortion access has done in our communities as well over the years, you know? That was one thing where folks kept talking about a post-Roe reality and what that would look like if we overturned Roe. And I kept saying, y'all, the post-Roe reality that you're envisioning is actually the lived reality of folks here in the South today. And so when Mm. or if, you know, Roe gets overturned, it's going to make it even more hard to access an abortion. So if someone was like, I'm so glad that they overturned Roe. I'm a little cheeky, so I'd be like, can you pass me the stuffing? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> but honestly, one of the things that I feel like is very important is to understand how folks came to that decision and why the overturn of Roe was important to them. So in that conversation, I was like, oh, okay, so you, you're excited about that. What made you excited? Like, what was the thing that got you excited about overturning Roe? And, you know, I feel like once you start to talk about it and really talk about the values that is shared. So we're talking about self determination. We're talking about autonomy, but that is not just restricted to your guns. That is across the board. If that's what we're saying. So, you know, really finding that middle ground around what values we have. So even if it's like you have a question of like, do you want the government to really determine what kind of health health care you get or how you get it the answer will absolutely be like no actually i don't want that i want to be able to make the decisions for my family and myself the response is that is exactly what people seeking abortion care also believe too Mm -hmm. you know and so finding the common thread and being able to be like but if we're talking about it in this way that's also a value that is shared this is not A partisan issue. It's not from this moral majority when we know that the majority of people actually support abortion access. So it's not being afraid to engage in the conversation, but knowing that conflict is not necessarily a bad thing, especially if you go into a conversation being principled um, and wanting to be in that principled struggle with folks. You're like, okay, I see you. I hear you. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Um, Yeah.
0: Don't throw the stuffing at me. No. Yeah, yeah. Keep that (laughs) that, um,
2: on your plate. Yes. Yes. So yeah, that's how I usually have those conversations. And I know the National Network of Abortion Funds, I think they still do, but they had these conversation cards asking about like, what would you say if someone said this about abortion? How would you respond to this particular question? And it's meant to... Be with not only your families, but a group of people who maybe have different opinions or even a group of people who still may believe in abortion and abortion access, but they're thinking about the right and not the accessibility of abortion. So really trying to like shift minds and hearts.
0: Yes, yes. I have enjoyed talking to you Mm -hmm. so much. (laughs) One final question. For the BGG community that is listening, that wants to get more involved in the fight, what are some of the first things that they can do?
2: Mm. So one of the first things I would say is really look into the difference between reproductive health rights and justice and really try to do that work to understand why reproductive justice advocates and activists are coming where they're coming, which is, the focus is not just on the me, it's the we. So doing that political education, if you don't know where to start, definitely reach out to your local abortion funds. There are almost 100 abortion funds, not only in this country, but like in Mexico and England as well that are part of our network. And so talking to people in your communities about abortion, abortion access and what you can do. There's also making a contribution. So. Abortion funds need funding. So any sort of financial contribution you can make, even if it's $5, you know, $5 will ensure that someone has a bus ticket or a trip from their appointment. And the last thing that I would say as far as what people can do is when you're thinking about getting involved with an organization, coming at them with like, what can I do? What can I do? Versus thinking about like, what are the things that you love? What are the things that bring you joy? What are the things that you're really, really good at? And think about that as far as like making a direct contribution to an abortion fund or to a repro organization. Like I can do administrative work. I can help with accounting work. Mm -hmm. If you need a graphic designer, I can help you with graphic design. Mm -hmm. So those are different ways that people can show up for organizations doing this work.
0: Oriaku, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you have done and you will do as we build something so much better. Just truly appreciate you. Thank
2: you, Ashanti. Thank you so much.
0: We know that getting involved in democracy can seem like an impossible task, but we at the BGG want to tell you That even the smallest contribution makes a difference. Whether you're passing around a petition, running for office, or even listening to this podcast, you are participating in the political process. Whether you donate an hour of your time to a meeting or a dollar to your party or candidate, you are making a difference. This season, we at the BGG are zooming in on the individual and going on the scene. Today, we are going on the scene for reproductive justice with Omishade Bernie Scott. She tells us about her work at the Black Girl's Guide to Menopause. She reminds us that true reproductive justice is intersectional.
3: My name is Omi Shade Bernie Scott. My pronouns are she and her. I reside on the occupied land of the Okunichi Sapona Nation, which is also known as Durham, North Carolina. I have been working in the area of social justice since 1995. And I'm also the curator and founder of the Black Girls Guide to Surviving Menopause, which is a multimedia platform that centers the stories of Black women, women identified and gender expansive people to help normalize the menopause experiences of Black people as well as the aging experiences. So much of my experience as a Black person in this country or my understanding of the experience of Black people in this country is that we've never felt ownership of our bodies. From the moment that we arrived in this country, throughout Jim Crow, throughout our experiences with the medical industrial complex, there's always been some way in which we have felt problematized as people in this country, whether our pain is not believed, whether our humanity is not believed. So what is happening currently in North Carolina, of course, like, most states across the country has to do with the dismantling of Roe versus Wade. And so North Carolina's abortion restrictions make it very difficult for a person to access reproductive health care after 20 weeks of pregnancy. So you've got groups like Sister Song, who's still doing work in North Carolina, NARAP Pro-Choice, Planned Parenthood, the abortion funds that make it possible for people to access financial resources and also doulas who can support them if they need to access reproductive health. That's happening right now in North Carolina. I had an opportunity to participate on a policy table that was convened by In Our Own Voice, Black Reproductive Justice Organization. We talked about the importance of health care and health insurance. We talked about the economic justice implications of ageism in the workforce and how that impacts menopausal people. And we also talked about housing. And housing inequities and how that impacts older people. So there are a lot of ways in which we can continue to work deeply in expanding the policy protections of Black people in this country as it relates to reproductive justice. And there is a whole movement of amazing reproductive justice organizations that are led by Black people, Latinx people, and Asian people across the country who are working so hard to do just that. Sometimes when we're looking at the issues that are happening around reproductive justice, people think, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. There is this thing where we have disconnected ourselves from each other, where we don't see our liberation and the freedoms that we should share being connected to each other. Because if it doesn't have anything to do with you, then it doesn't seem to matter. And I would wager that has everything to do with you because all of the protections that we share are interconnected. You know, the protections that go away leave groups of people who wouldn't otherwise think they were vulnerable, vulnerable to their rights also being taken. And I would like for folk to be more curious about that and figure out the ways that it connects to their story and how they can become more educated and maybe even, you know, involved in protecting the rights of all people.
0: Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. ActBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small-dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At actbluecom directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to actblue.com slash directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wondermia Network, and you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Tune in to the next episode, where we'll speak with Nayeli Kobo, a young climate activist and co-founder of People Not Pozos and the South Los Angeles Youth Leadership Coalition. If you care about our environment, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Until next time, brown girls. If you're looking for a new podcast, try The Kinswoman. The Kinswomen podcast is a place to bridge the gaps between women of color and white women and talk about race from a place of love and compassion. Named the best new podcast by Elle, Marie Claire, and Cosmopolitan, subscribe to Kinswomen today to listen to amazing stories of their BIPOC guests.